Welcome to coffeeis.me podcast, where me means you, or more precisely, us. This is the show where your host, Valerian, and Marcus, without using any interrogation techniques, convinces coffee professionals to reveal their secrets to teach and inspire you to make better coffee and earn a few bucks on the side, if that's what you fancy. Let the show begin. Hey, here we are. Um... Welcome to the Coffee Is Me podcast. This is Marcus Young from Boot Coffee Campus with my co-host, Valerian. Hey, people. How are you? And I'm so excited to finally sit down after, geez, years of planning to sit down and talk and to capture it on the podcast with um, my buddy Arno from Bellwether Coffee Roasters. Yeah, hello. Um, I think just to get started, maybe Arno can give us a little bit of a a window into what this bellwether thing is why it's um, unique in the roasting industry and kind of whatever you want to tell us about it yeah absolutely i think um so at bellwether we've created a uh a coffee roaster that uh, does not need to be vented there's no exhaust stack and it does not uh, burn any natural gas those are the sort of the first two things that you notice about it um our mandate here is beyond just that sort of question of input and output um we want to create the best coffee roaster uh that's ever been built and when we think about best specifically we're thinking about the most controllable and consistent coffee roaster um when you do something like build a roaster you have to start to be very specific about what you think of as a good roaster right? Like what makes a good roaster? And I would say that we are one of the growing chorus of voices that thinks that um, consistency is probably the, from the roaster's point of view, from a purely like uh, uh, aesthetic point of view, is the thing that we lack the most in other extant roaster designs. And that, uh, that consistency once achieved as we have, uh, then opens new doors of control. Excellent. Uh, Marcus is right away business, but I'm more personable. Yeah. Usually. <laughs> yeah. So, Arno, I, 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 want, I want that people have some feeling for you as a person. Okay. And usually my question is like, you know, do you remember your first cup of coffee okay. and how was it? Yeah. Yeah. I totally remember my first cup of coffee. It was, I was 13 years old and my parents were both coffee drinkers. They owned uh, I cannot re- remember a day in my life where there, I didn't have a Chemex. Um, they were like of the 70s Chemex generation. Mm-hmm. And every morning they ground uh, 8 o'clock bean coffee fresh. Oh, yeah. That was like the best one could get and made it in their Chemex. And my mom is a, a huge coffee drinker, has always been. She's one of those uh, fortunate people who can drink coffee until like 9 o'clock at night and then go to bed. Um, I'm not, unfortunately, but, uh, so I really wanted to drink coffee cause they were drinking coffee and, uh, my dad was not so into it because he thought it would stunt my growth, but my mom gave me a cup of this, like half coffee, half milk. And you're pretty tall. So yeah, I guess, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Goodness knows right. what would have happened. 
By the way, anybody who's listening and heard this, that coffee is done your growth, it's not true. <laughs> I feed coffee to my kids, I double-checked it, I researched it, it's not true. Yeah. And yep. Arno, you are also an example of that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, my goddaughter, who's three, well, since she was one, she would grab a coffee cup and take sips out of it. Yes. If you were holding her. So I'm, I'm yes. glad to hear that yes. all's going to be well for her. Say hi to your parents, because that's an awesome experience with coffee. It really was. I mean, my um, I really owe so much to that moment in my life and uh, I enjoyed the beverage uh, from the first time I drank it and um, it followed me it kind of was part of my life from then on so here's a question sorry Marcos because I'm just curious that you have these amazing experience because most of the people when I'm asked this question they have some horrible first experience with coffees and they discover especially coffee and they want to like do like oh this is amazing world I want to work on in it suddenly you have this amazing experience for a first coffee experience and you still want to improve the coffee industry. Why is that? Yeah, I think, well, you know, so so I had that, there was that phase of my coffee experience where it was like a, a small cup mixed half and half with milk every morning. And then uh, I got a job where um, at an ice cream store that was open till two in the morning. I promise this is all relevant. And so I drank a lot of coffee to stay up and be able to still make it to school and that kind of stuff. And the coffee there was really bad. And so I kind of then got into that phase of thinking about coffee as a, a delivery vehicle for caffeine. Um, and then I doubled down on that. Uh, I uh, worked for a, a cafe in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, that roasted its own coffee. Um, and so I roasted coffee in like 1994 or something like that when I was very young. And what was that machine? Do you remember? Oh, of course. I can't yeah, wait to tell you yeah. about it. So let's <laughs> it was we a, pepper this conversation yeah, with these exactly. details that, that okay. lead to where we are now. So it's a homemade civets roaster. Um, it was made from a blower that had been harvested from, I think it was a GMC blazer, okay, from like the 70s. Uh, that blew air over the heating What's coil. What's a GMC blazer? Sorry. It's a big uh, SUV from the 70s. Gotcha. Okay. And it blew that air over a coil from a GE electric stove. So this was when Michael was like writing his books and putting plans out in the world for people to, to take yeah. and do what they want before Civets was a yeah. manufacturer, yeah. right? The guy, so the, the founder of that company, he was a pretty good friend of mine and he told me that he had gotten the drawings to make it out of the Mother Earth News, which if nobody knows, it's like this old magazine. Like uh, Another design that I saw from there was uh, never pay for heating oil again. It was this thing that would burn the used motor oil from your truck to heat your home, which was just like the 70s back to the lander, do it all yourself. It's the best. And, and I love that your first experience was on a civets roaster. I mean, there's there yes. might be some listeners that aren't familiar with Michael Civets or these roasters, yeah. but you know, they're especially on the West Coast, they're kind of a ubiquitous fluid bed roaster, you know, and they go up to massive sizes, hundreds of they pounds. They do. They do. Um, and they and played a role at this company, too. We'll return yeah. to Civets Roasting in a little bit. 100%. There was, it seems like there's a, a an evolutionary yeah. um, link there. Yeah. Civets I, Roasters are super consistent for their day. Yeah. I mean, it was it was the roaster. <laughs> so you remember this company was founded in like 1976. Okay. So at that time, roasting in your cafe was really unheard of. Roasting was kind of mm -hmm. a... It was the same, like, like this is the same generation of businesses as, like, when Fritz Maytag restarted Anchor Steam Brewing and Ken Grossman started Sierra Nevada, right? There are people in the 70s who start to look around and say, like, I can do it myself, right? 
but they didn't all have the trajectory that we would think of. The Runcible Spoon still exists. Um, uh, it's a great place to get breakfast. It's a great place generally. I love it. Uh, and they're still roasting on that old Civet's roaster. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so they never like, and I think they're more of a restaurant now than a cafe. I, I don't think they would mind me saying, or a, a coffee roastery. I don't think they'd mind me saying that. Um, so if you did this, you know, we all have all come of age in this wonderful time, but there were people who were trying to do this at a different time. And, uh, many of them just kind of like gutted it out and did not see the bright future that we saw. You know, it's interesting that what you mentioned about seventies, I'm European and I was working for United Nations. I came home and decided to do coffee and that's 2001 or two around there. And I was like, oh, well, how hard this can be, right? I can just, you know, go check out some factory, you right. know, how they roast coffee. And European at that, Europeans at that time were so secretive about anything. They didn't let me. I could buy from them green beans. And I said, can I see your uh, roaster? He said, no. Mm-hmm. I said, I just bought green beans from you. No. And, you know, that's, you know, people don't realize that today, if you get into a coffee industry, you are so spoiled. All the information is out there. You have different choices, different uh, possibilities compared to like 90s for sure, or 2000, beginning 2000 in Central Europe for sure. That's very true. I mean, so I, that's a great dovetail because I I like didn't do coffee then for a while and I was a reporter. I went to college and I got degrees in German language and literature and political science. And then I became a reporter and I lived abroad for a while in Germany. Um, but I had nothing to do with coffee. I just would drink coffee, you know, and not very good coffee at that. Chibo yellow or Chibo red? Uh, I was, uh, <laughs> I was a Lavazza, uh, person. Oh, I, snob. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I, um, I drank a lot of like, uh, um, I think it was called like, like Albrecht's Bestia or something like that from Aldi. It was like the, the good coffee from Aldi, um, you know, and, and uh, in Germany, the traditional beverage is very strong filter coffee. That's mm-hmm. how people drink it. And uh, um, but I came back to the States in 2004 and um, did a traditional thing. When people enter the Bay Area for the first time, I had four jobs. I was uh, helping to rehab somebody's apartment in San Francisco. I was still writing for a magazine. Uh, I was a bartender, and then I also wanted to get a job making cappuccinos. I was like, that'll be fun for me. And um, somebody pointed me in the direction of this uh, crazy guy who was um, trying to start a coffee company in the potting shed behind a Oaxacan fine dining restaurant. And I, um, so I walked over there, and uh, there was this sort of um, skinny pr- person laboring furiously at a tiny little coffee roaster. There were bags of coffee around and there was a one group San Marco lever espresso machine. And that was James Freeman and that was Blue Bottle. And, uh, and yeah, I started working there and um, had the privilege of uh, being able to grow with that company. Um, they, it was a, and this is sort of what I talked about with the dovetailing. At that time, um, there was uh, the book by Kenneth Davids that we looked at. Mm-hmm. And there was not a whole lot else. And Sweet Maria's. Yeah. Sweet Maria's, absolutely. And, and of course, we were in Royal. I have to give a huge shout out to Royal. They really helped steer mm-hmm. us in the right direction in many ways because there was really no playbook for us. And so we, there was a, 
there was a positive side to that though that I think has been a through line in my career, which is that there was no playbook, which meant that we got to do a lot of exploring and uh, we were free of dogma, right? And um, we really, you know, the joke is like, uh, coffee was already a very popular product. And we were like, well, we know you love coffee, but how about if we charged you more for it and gave you less of it and you couldn't put any of the things in it that you normally would want to and you have to stand in line for an hour. And um, the response was overwhelming. (laughs) (laughs) Right time, right place, right Right vision. Yeah, yeah. I think that people were really ready for a focus. They were ready for like, there was like a generation of auteurs, right? Right. Right. The people who were just like, they knew what they wanted to do. And, you know, I think that, uh, that Dwayne and Doug, you know, also fit into that category. They knew what they wanted to do. They had a vision of what they wanted their coffee to be like, and then they pursued that. And, um, and the business success came along, uh, as a byproduct of that. I love what you said about there was no dogma in coffee. That Very, time, which, not which as is, much. Yeah. Which is. You know, that's uh, again going back to my European roots. You know, when it comes to espresso, everything there is there in 2000s, there was like a very strict rule how we do it seven grams, one shot, 14 grams, double shot. And any deviation of that, you are a butcher, you're doing something wrong. Yeah. And you know, and me and Marcus, and we, that still happens. I mean, there was just yeah. the right. article from up in Oregon from the food scientists studying chemists studying espresso extraction that try to kind of throw the world on its head, right? It's right. like longer shots, coarser ground, better extraction, better flavor. Like, And boy, you're crucified if you try to come up with something like that Yeah, in, but in some cases. And you don't think about the flavor. You just think about the rules. You know, yep. when I was popped here in 2010, coming from Europe, like, you know, to the Bay Area, and I was doing coffee. I got really bored in, in Europe with coffee. I was doing actually something else. Then I came here. I was like, what should I do? Maybe I should look into coffee. I was like whoa, it's like, you know, you're putting a kid in, in a candy land, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So that was my referral compared to the uh, Europe at that time. Of course, mm-hmm. it changed and, you know, there's many more opportunities. Yeah. But, you know, for me, that was fascinating. Anyhow, anyhow uh, how about your roster? Yeah, well, I, wait, before we leave this, I have to give one more shout out because I actually really omitted something important about how we, the, the people that helped us get where we were at that time, and that's uh, Dave Schomer. I'm always, oh, yeah. I always want to say right. thank you, Dave Schomer. Anytime I get a chance, um, I still actually, I still really enjoy that style of espresso that he espoused in those two videos. They make for um, wonderful incidental comedy. I showed them to my wife recently, and she just like thought that that was hilarious. The whole thing. Um, but uh, Dave, if you're listening, thank you. Uh, you really got us off to a great start there. Um, so yeah, about the coffee roaster. Yeah, no, but I mean, I, th- I think just one more you know, bit about your history also is, mm-hmm. you know, this company Artis, right? Oh, that's and your, true. And your time there, which, I mean, it seems... It was very I, relevant. I like sort of hearing your narrative. Because yeah. It seems like everything kind of lined up perfect. Yes, up yes. to here. Yeah, so I, I worked at Blue Bottle for 10 years uh, until 2014. And then in early 2015, I started working for a coffee company called Artis Coffee. Uh, and they were a group of um, business people, uh, very bright young business people who wanted to open a bunch of cafes with in-store roasting. And there was a a short wave of wild success and then it didn't work out the way that we had wanted it to, but 
um, that experience of seeing what kind of reaction people had to in-store roasting and what the advantages of in-store roasting were has very much informed my time here. I mean, everybody, you can, you can intuitively understand that when your customer walks through the door and sees that you are roasting coffee there, that might be a good thing, right? Because the, the customer, consumers generally, and I think this is a very good thing, want more transparency into where things that they are consuming are coming from. And it isn't, they really want to understand how is this thing done, right? Because um, there's so much mystery and, and the suspicion, I think, sometimes of harm that they're inadvertently um, uh, supporting. So that part was great. But what I hadn't realized until I worked there was that it makes the coffee product that you serve far superior because you can manage your aging of your coffee. And so for people who have run cafes uh, and, and got a, a once weekly delivery from their wholesaler, um, you understand that, you know, you're probably going to start serving that coffee when it may not have degassed enough. And by the time that you're done, it's a little bit past where you'd like it to be. I think most people who really understand their coffee products know like they want to serve their espresso on day five or day six or day three, depends on your product and what you're trying to do. But we, I quickly understood, okay, if you have a, a roaster in your cafe, you can supply yourself and you're, you've like eliminated this uh, inbound supply chain link that's really bad for cafes. So after a year there, um, I left and started, I, would, I kind of would do anything. I was a consultant. I contract roasted uh, quite a bit of coffee. You took a long hike. I took a long hike in there in 2016. I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail for the second time. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, I started doing a lot of consulting and advising for um, this guy, Ricardo, that I had met, Ricardo Lopez, who wanted to start a company manufacturing roasters for companies like Artise. Um, at Artise, we used the best thing we could find. It was an electric civets roaster. Uh, it's a single pass system. And they were workhorses, but there were some flaws that we definitely could perceive in the design. Um, and so when Ricardo came along, and was like, you know, I think that we, we like what you're doing at Artiste, and we think that we can make a, make a device that will allow you to do what you really want to do. That sounded great. But when he said, and it's going to be an electric roaster that doesn't require any venting, I told him to his face that he was crazy, but that would never work. <laughs> um, and... Uh, <laughs> I, is one of the great privileges of my career that I am so frequently proven wrong on, on that kind of thing. Um, because it turns out you can, and we did. You know, there were roasters before who promised no venting. Yes, there were. There was this, uh, it looked like a small, actually a, a big microwave. And uh, it had this, actually like a small washing machine. And yeah. I remember they were promoting it heavily in like, what was it like? Maybe 2000 something and it disappeared. I think like Pro 1500, something like that. Do you remember that? I don't. And uh, I'm just going to say like, yeah, we know that there have been other people that have tried to go down this path. Um, we do think that we think that we're the first ones to really bring home the bacon on this value proposition. Um, and, and it was because of the approach and the team that we assembled at Bellwether. Um, so Ricardo, 
Ricardo started talking to me uh, about, and so I was kind of advising him on how the coffee industry worked from the production side of things, right? Less concerned about retail operations, more concerned about the like production operations, green buying, roasting, quality control, all that good stuff. And, and that's what I had done at Blue Bottle. Um, and then he started to engage with Gabriel Boscana, um, who is still our green buyer today. And um, Gabe's really started digging in and providing um, the perspective of an expert green buyer. And then John Sandu, our chief technology officer, came on. And um, he was somebody, uh, John is one of the most creative intellects I've ever worked with and and a like five-star communicator as well um, which was very necessary for us and um, uh, Kimberly um, uh, who's our vice president of marketing here Kimberly Noon she uh, was our design mind and our brand mind and um, and so really pretty soon you had this um, this nucleus of people um, that was going to be able to get this project off the ground. I just want to say, like, I don't think it could have worked if we, you needed to have a roaster help design the roaster. You needed to have a green buyer informing our initial thoughts about what it would be like, like why you would ever want to buy green coffee from us. We're a reseller of green coffee, right? And, and, you needed somebody who really understood marketing and branding to talk about what our identity should be, right? And we thought a lot about our identity. Who, who are we trying to be, a Che Guevara or a Julia Childs? Um, we're Julia Childs. Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, uh, it, was, uh, it was a very exciting time. And um, in May of 2017, uh, like 75% of my business was then doing this consulting and advising for Bellwether. And so I made the switch and joined the rest of the team that had come on full time. Um, and around that time in early 2017, um, we also uh, brought on Nathan Gilliland, who's our CEO, uh, and who um, brought another really important skill set uh, around um, scaling startups and um, around keeping startups true to their moral compass. Uh, Nathan, um, Nathan's history is in trying to, um, he's really sort of a revolutionary uh, um, climate activist, if you think about it that way. Uh, he uh, grew a company called Harvest Energy that's still the largest um, converter of biomass to natural gas and soil products in North America. And he also led uh, one of the two companies that is trying to commercialize nuclear fusion, which um, people can have very legitimate opinions about nuclear energy, but just remember fusion is the good kind <laughs> that we don't know how to do yet. Right. Wow. And, and uh, so he really came in and, and had this, and it, that has been true since that I think, um, and of course, Ricardo is the, the visionary behind it all. Uh, but I think that this team has kind of been able to move us forward in a very specific and planful way. I love hearing you you say that. I mean, I, I often, when I sort of assess companies just personally or when working with clients, it's, it is that sort of team of kind of either founders yeah. or 
early employees that, and I think that just as you described, it's these very complementary skills. Yes. I'm sure there's some intensive disagreements when you're having meetings and things about oh, absolutely. which way to go, but that's absolutely, probably, it sounds like a creative tension and absolutely. I think it's, I mean, we've, um, as humans, we communicate better than ever. Like, it, um, each time when we sit down and we talk over something thorny, it goes better than the last time I feel. And we've added to the team, you know, um, um, uh, my dear friend Boozer, who I worked with for 10 years at Blue Bottle, came on quite early as well um, as the chief people officer. Because again, we knew even we were a very young company that at this company, culture and our team and our mission were going to be our competitive advantages, right? Everybody was gonna know why they were showing up to work. And we wanted to attract the kind of people that wanted to have meaningful work and then get the most out of them. Because we are, and just to say this out loud and, and right away, we are a very missionally focused company. We are totally trying to change the industry. Um, that doesn't mean that we're trying to pick winners and losers. That is not what I would say about us. That's not part of our identity. Um, but we think that there are, there are things that are wrong with our industry and um, the players need to just start being quite explicit about addressing them. Right. Let's talk specs. Yeah, let's talk specs. I like that. So because, you know, we're talking about your company, we're talking about Belvedere, but uh, people that maybe know that there's some roster because mm -hmm. we did not reveal it yet. Oh, yeah. Really, what is it? So what is the Bellwether roster? Okay, so the Bellwether roster um, could be seen as a three kilo roaster. Per batch. Um, per batch, that's mm -hmm. correct. When we say three kilo, we mean three kilo, not three kilo times 0.8 in order to hit the roast profile you might want. Okay. Again, we just we had an opportunity to reframe what batch size means and we took it. Um, it is a, a stainless steel fixed drum uh, married with an agitator design. So it's a modified drum or a fixed drum roasting chamber that will be familiar to most people from Loring. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and we definitely are, are, are fans of Loring. I've roasted on Loring a lot in my life on Loring's and I, I really like them. Um, I think that they produce wonderful coffee and, and I also really, I, we just owe an incredible debt to Loring because they, in my mind, were the first company maybe since the Civets Roasters. Uh, I think that other roaster companies would disagree with this, but they were the first company that just like took a quantum leap forward in their design. Yeah, it was clean slate design, and yes. they pretty quickly proved it. Yes, as far as like the coffee coming out, the companies that adopted it. Yeah, um, yeah, right. It, yeah, I think it would be hard for for you to to launch from zero with kind of a similar design without totally. them laying some of the groundwork. Totally. I mean, we did. Um, so yeah, let me talk more about. Let's get back to specs for a second, yeah. and then I'll go a bit back into development history because there was a moment where we thought we weren't going to use this design. Uh, we so air hot air comes in the back and it goes through the drum. Um, there's uh, the agitator mixes the beans and the air together really efficiently, um, and then that hot smoky air leaves the drum through a plenum. All of this is like any other roaster you would find, right? Um, there's a chaff cyclone again. That's very conventional. Nothing new there really. Um, but then the air goes out of the chaff cyclone and it goes into an assembly that that cleans the air uh, using what I have long now called a managed catalytic process, um, which is to say 
it isn't you can't just drop a catalytic element into the smoke stream and have that work um, because it will foul and uh, roasters have tried mm -hmm. um, you do need to be very we were quite innovative in how we handle that component and that part of our of our roaster and that's probably all I'm going to say about what happens in there in that little component because um, we uh, we know that we have people who are um, competing with us. We think that's all fair game, but we are going to keep our competitive advantage as long as yeah, we can. We don't <laughs> expect you to share your secrets. Yeah, sauce. yeah, yeah, yeah. Although it's worth noting here that we know that that's going to happen at some point. People are going to figure out how we do everything that we do. And so as a company, our, we are not trying to protect our little treasure. I mean, we are trying to protect all of our intellectual property, of course. But... Um, we view that our survival is probably more dependent on our ability to make more innovation, right? Yeah, eventually somebody's going to buy one, reverse engineer it, like no matter all of the Absolutely. care in the world with NDAs. Absolutely. Well, there's really, there's uh, you're legally allowed, if you buy something, you're legally allowed to take it apart to nuts and bolts. That's called patent exhaustion, right? Now, mm -hmm. you are not legally allowed to copy it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, that's just the world we live in and so anyway we we clean the air there it goes through a, a very fancy blower um, the entire uh, the entire circuit is all stainless steel um, that was important to us uh, and then that blower uh, takes it back through there's um, another sort of uh, thermal control device there that gets the air temperature it's a tiny little not a tiny little it's a very precise little heater that gets the inlet air to be the exact temperature that you want it to be uh, and the the blower is controlled so that the air speed is at the exact temperature that you want it to be and then that's brought in contact with the beans again okay i saw those you had uh kind of like a tablet on it what does that mm -hmm. do and also you had these hopper which was really funky design yeah so the tablet that you control the roaster uh through a tablet right now an ipad and so we have our own iOS app that you use to, um, to interface with the roaster. Um, you can also use it to purchase green coffees from our marketplace. You can use it to set up a roast queue. Uh, let's say that you're like the manager of a shop and you want to ask your employees to roast a certain set of batches during the day. Um, you, can, you can set that up for them so it's all very clear. Um, the hopper is, um, we have a removable hopper uh, most roasters, you kind of have to get to the, there's either like a bucket loader or a pneumatic loader, or you have to get up on a step stool or get your arms really high to dump that green coffee into the hopper. Yeah, and I'm 5'11", and I'm not the strongest guy, but I hate lifting oh, yeah, 15 pounds of coffee or 6 pounds of coffee, whatever it is. Me too. Three the, or four times an hour for an eight-hour shift. Oh, forget I mean, about it. oh, those many mornings at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, uh, when I worked at Blue Bottle, dumping like max batches into a UG22 mm. again and again and again, you know, um, it is a repetitive uh, stress injury uh, nightmare. And I mean, those old roaster designs, a lot of them are from the, the 60s when people didn't think about that stuff. So I, I, I cast no aspersions. But today we know a lot more about um, keeping people, well, occupational health, right? And uh, also it's a question of accessibility for us. We want this, Huge. yeah, we want roasting to be something that anybody can do. Like that's sort of one of our more radical 
propositions. You shouldn't be, you shouldn't need to be strong to roast. But this is something that, I mean, I always talk about with our students and clients. It's like somebody's size, mm -hmm. which often translates to gender. Yeah, exactly. Is a BS reason for not giving them a job. And you've that's been in this business as long right. as I have. I've known a lot of small men who roast who have never been asked the question, can you lift the coffee into the hopper every batch? I've known a lot of women who have. And yeah. so I just wanted to like pause on that because I think it's, on one hand it seems so simple, but it actually is kind of a radical concept just to remove that ever from the equation. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really, that gets back to this question of this company's identity when we were like, what are we trying to do? <laughs> like, we're going to spend all of this time and it has been a tremendous amount of time and effort, I can assure you. What are we trying to achieve? And I think that for for the team, pretty much the whole team, we were like, we're, we want to see the cadre of roasters become more diverse, right? We Or we would like to open the door to that. And that's about tearing down barriers to access. And so we started to really think about, well, what are the barriers to access? Um, and there are physical barriers to access that we're talking about, right? I mean, you you mentioned the question of question of gender. Um, there's the question of age. 100%. There's um, there's uh, the question of being differently abled, right? Um, and there's nothing that says that somebody um, who happens to be in a wheelchair on a given day wouldn't be the best roaster in the world. In our mind, roasting is knowledge work. It's about creativity and and your sensorial skills your problem solving skills, right? Um, you know, like nobody asks a, uh, a master brewer to go out and like harvest the barley. Like it's, <laughs> you know, um, they can, they can taste and then comment upon recipes. Right. And I think that that's sort of where we think this should be going. We also think that, uh, the apprenticeship model of education, and I'm probably preaching to the choir here is a, is like a implicit bias generator, right? Yep. People who, if you are a roaster and you are able to select which of this, like there are like 20 baristas, let's say that all want to be roasters and you can just sort of pick which one you want to work with because you are going to have to work with them for a long time. It might be six months before you're willing to let that person, you know, roast without you being there in some sort of supervisory capacity. Um, it's nothing intentional, but it has led to a more homogenous group of roasters. Okay. And I, I was fully part of that system. I was on both sides of that system. I, mm -hmm. I apprenticed under people and I sort of have had apprentices as well. Right. But if you, if you want to, if you want to tear down a barrier to access, I think that the best thing to do is to just give give everyone access to that tool, right? It's this, the, the greatest tools of democratization are not, not necessarily policies that say you must be more democratic in your actions. They are um, technological advances that make it impossible for the current system to maintain itself. Okay, so you mentioned now kind of broadly for yes. who these- uh, I keep on doing that, don't I? No, no, that's amazing. No, no, it's just like I, I, I'm focused guy. I'm like yeah. you know Germans, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so I want to understand for because you said it's three kilo roaster. That's right. That's always was like wait three kilo. It's not for me as a roaster. You know, it's like uh -huh. I need 
Great question. 15, 20. You think that, don't you? Per batch. And I'm curious, for who is this roster for? Is it for home rosters? I, I even want to back up a And I also want to back up just a little bit because at some point I think we should just describe, I'm sure everybody listening has gone online if they don't already know Bellwether yeah, and, check it out. and checked it out. But, right, I mean, it's like when I think about it, you know, it's like, okay, it's like a refrigerator, like a commercial refrigerator size device oh, yeah. that, no, it that is. is plug and play, that is... It Very is, friendly looking. It's precisely the size of a of a specific true refrigerator because I had this fantasy that people that cafes have like a reach in milk refrigerator and they've got a little counter cut out for it and that we would present them with this roaster and they would wheel the refrigerator to the back and put our roaster in in its place. By the way, it looks amazing. Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. really beautiful. So I, I just yeah. wanted to back up to that, but I absolutely want to hear. Um, when yeah, I, when I mentioned, I just have to say that when I mentioned home roasters, Arno had these kind of like. Very angry. Look at no, me. No, no, not angry at all. It was an, it was an intense. Intense. That's right. Intense. intense. Yeah, okay. I, don't I know mean, what the motion was behind it. I want to. I want to meet the home roaster that needs to produce like twelve pounds of roasted coffee an hour. That guy is going to be really awesome. Uh, <laughs> that person. Um, but it's it is not intended for the home market. It's intended for places where coffee is retailed. But what I was really reacting to there, Valerian, that I think is a that's something that I really like to a conversation I like to engage in is um th is this roaster too small for me okay mm -hmm. um and our our belief is that um coffee manufacturing coffee roastering should be moved to the point of retail okay um so like if you think about what a coffee shop is it is many things it's a it's a place for interaction it's a place for customer service and for experiences it's also a little factory right and people who've worked in coffee shops know that there's often some like you get in in the morning and you like you must make the sandwiches before the door opens or something like that right and so they're they're engaged in food manufacturing if you look at it that way and they're definitely engaged in latte manufacturing at a very high clip um, and so we want to bring them into coffee roasted coffee manufacturing as well however uh in your role right um you could so, okay, there's an important part about this roaster that we have to say first. Um, because the Bellwether is a recirculating roaster, okay, and this is an important technical digression here, it doesn't bring air in from ambient, heat it once, use it to roast coffee, and then eject it. It brings in air that is almost hot enough because it's reusing its exhaust, and then it just adds a little bit more heat, and then it brings that through a second time, and a third and a fourth, actually about three times a second. The reason that that's so important is that systems that do not require huge thermal inputs are inherently much more stable and predictable than systems that do. I have this metaphor here, so everybody that I've ever talked to about this, you can like tune out for the next 20 seconds. If you're driving on an icy road and there are a lot of hairpin curves, it's very easy to fall off the road because you're having to max out your inputs, your control inputs into your system, right? But if you were to do the same thing on a straight road, it wouldn't be a big deal or one that was gently turning. And so our roaster, because it is stable and predictable, and has, uh, well, it is stable and predictable because it has such a little need for thermal inputs, right? It makes it more efficient. This is the big, the, the punchline. It makes it possible for you to set a roast profile on any Bellwether roaster, and then any other Bellwether roaster that we have ever made and put out into the field can execute that profile, okay? 
So back to your original question, three kilos, is that for me? Uh, if you were running an empire of 100 cafes and they each had a bellwether and you had one, you wouldn't even need a roastery anymore at this point. You could have like an office and you had a pilot roaster there. You could set up your roast profiles on that pilot roaster and then just send green beans to each of your cafes, right? And you don't have a three kilo roaster, you have a 300 kilo roasting system. And each cafe is doing 15 pounds an hour just to make it. Yeah, I mean. To, to kind of round it, right? I mean, 18 pounds an hour, maybe 15 pounds roasted. And then. Yeah. So the busy cafe is doing 250 pounds. Most of those 100 stores are probably doing 100 pounds of coffee. What most, most cafes, unless they have a really healthy business selling bags of roasted beans across the counter, a healthy cafe will do 200 pounds in a week. In a week. Yep. So that's yeah, actually like kind a, of talking the same. That's a yeah kick butt cafe. Th that's a kick butt cafe. At two hundred pounds a week, you are you have a very healthy business. The owner's never around. You've got a good staff. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and that would be, uh, that's not even a full time equivalency. And and mm -hmm. uh, you know, to produce that coffee in the store, again, we we come from cafes. We understand that for cafes, their um, their largest cost is almost always labor. And so we wanted to have a very light footprint on labor and make sure that we weren't, um, you know, it, the system doesn't work and it's, it's not economical if you have to hire um, somebody just to supply your cafe. We really wanted this to be something where it could be side work, essentially. Mm -hmm. And so let's, let's kind of continue on this, like, value to the cafe. Yeah. Let's just yeah. say that we'll role play a little bit. I, I, I own a bakery, right? And we go yeah. through 150 pounds of coffee a week. Yeah. You know, I'm buying good, but maybe not awesome specialty coffee. My wholesale price is 10 bucks a pound just because okay. it's a round number, okay. right? Yeah, okay. And, and that's kind of a realistic scenario, I think. Yeah, yeah. So we would come in and, and to a person like that, we would say, well, um, we can definitely save you money, okay? Uh, our roaster, again, think about like barriers to access. Our roaster, um, the sticker price on our roaster is $75,000 and it is available for cash purchase if people want that. Um, but we also offer lease terms and rental terms so that people don't need to have a huge pile of cash, right? And anyway, as much as $75,000 is, uh, most roasteries, if you're building out a roastery, you're talking about something that is in the uh, seven figures these days. Um, and even if you want to put like a, a small conventional roaster in your shop, you're going to find that, that that can take quite a bit of time with permitting. But at any rate, so uh, I, I want to stop. get into that question. Yeah, I'm now curious the, the about permitting. installation permitting. Okay. So okay. Maybe, and um, maybe we table that and kind of continue. Let's this table first that. Discussion. Let's okay. table that. Let's we'll table that. Okay. It down. <laughs> it's down. I, that was the first thing I actually wrote down when yeah, I yeah, started yeah. talking about ventless and no gas. So okay. yeah, and it's an important thing to consider. But okay, so we would say. Um, Let's say you are going to rent it from us. And so you're renting it from us for um, $1,500 a month, okay? And you are, um, you said, how much are you roasting a week? Uh, let's say 150 pounds I'm going through a roasted product at right. $10 a pound. Okay, great. So um, you're, so it's 1,500. So um, if you were to, install one of our roasters, the, the roasting fee, if you will, from the rental, which is our, our lowest commitment and highest 
cost per month option of engaging with us would be two and a half dollars a pound. Okay. Um, again, if anybody's ever tried to run a roasting facility, depending on what market you're in, that could actually be a totally respectable production upcharge, even in a fully, yep. in a full-fledged facility. So it's it's two and a half dollars a pound, and then you might say, well, but I need to hire a uh, an expert roaster and a green buyer, and and if you have those things or are those things, then you can absolutely do all that yourself. We love that. Um, however, in your example, you're a bakery, maybe you don't know those skills yet, or maybe you don't even want to, you can buy coffee from our marketplace. And all the green coffee in that marketplace has been purchased by Gabriel Boscana, who I referenced earlier, who's one of the best green buyers in the business. Um, the roast profiles uh, have been developed specifically for that coffee by our team of roasters here, which is me and Greg Dawson and uh, Anderson just joined us. Um, and so we will, um, Iterate and iterate and iterate until we found the perfect roast profiles. We usually uh, release each coffee with four of them. Um, and that coffee, so that the coffee you can buy from our marketplace, it does cost more than it would cost if you bought the same coffee on the open marketplace. We're buying this coffee from importers. We're not an importer, right? But we then do a lot of value add stuff. Um, and so, oh, we also box it into 22 pound boxes because the material handling operation, this is something I learned at Artis, can be very onerous for cafes. Mm -hmm. 70 kilo bags in cafes do not really mix. Not only in cafes, in roasteries too, like we work yes. in Amish Coffee, we change our packaging, I bring coffee, so I have like Amish Coffee, which is a brand I call the farmer from Brazil. Mm -hmm. So that's a kind of like interesting thing that it's a half-half company, a half roaster, half mm -hmm. uh, owned by a farmer, and we change our last year of packaging to 30 kilos because moving 60 yeah. kilos, boy, that's so hard, especially if you're yeah. a small company, not enough staff. It's crazy. So I love that. Yeah. yeah. So with all of that, so it's sort of like um, you never need to sign a contract. You don't need to be an expert roaster. You don't need to be an expert green buyer. Uh, we'll provide you with a full set of data about the sustainability initiatives or what are, how it interacted with our sustainability guidelines. Okay. And just to take a quick dog leg there, we're on team cost of sustainable production, and we're doing some really interesting things there to kind of work with farmers to assess what that is for them. Great. Um, uh, and then it comes with, a, uh, you know, photos and cupping notes and elevation, genetics, the whole package, right? More than you would get from an importer because we do research on these coffees. And you'll have cupping notes on each of these four profiles. Yeah. So you don't need a yeah. taster on your team. to. That's right. And we adjust the profiles as the coffee's age, okay? Mm -hmm. We do the QA piece here as well. And all that costs $1.50 a pound. So uh, the value proposition around our marketplace, if you think about it this way, like if you had to hire a green buyer and a head roaster and somebody to do QA and somebody to mine the store on all the contracts and do demand forecasting and all that stuff, you start to add those salaries up and very quickly you get to a quarter million dollars, right? If you wanted to do it right, really have a like a top tier operation like the big companies do. It, actually, if it's like the big companies do, that's clearly more than a quarter of a million dollars that's being spent. Our contention is like we're going to spend that money, and then we're going to parcel that benefit out to all of the smaller players here that want to engage with our marketplace, so that they can experience the benefits of having a uh, a coffee team, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and we're very focused on, again, like what our customers want to have happen. 
I, I think it's been liberating for a lot of us that we know a lot about how to make coffee taste pungent and like pipe tobacco for people in the darker end of the spectrum or very floral and that like um, uh, sort of very citric uh, quality of, of lighter roasted coffees in some uh, cases. Um, but we don't actually choose what happens here, right? We, we let our customers decide if they want to have a light coffee, um, a really exquisite uh, Gesha, like we, we purchased Gesha from the Petersons, and we also do a, a fair business in sustainably sourced, um, uh, value-oriented coffees from Brazil, right? So value-oriented, you said, and that was my next question because Marcus mentioned the cafe. Uh, oh yeah, we're talking about this cafe, this bakery. Yeah, because yes. baker doesn't yeah, we have care good, about geishas. Great coffee. Yeah, okay, great. Got, you know, it's good in milk. It's chocolatey. Sure. Yeah, so we, sweet, we have a good body. We absolutely have a coffee that you could purchase for like um, less than three fifty a pound, probably closer to three dollars a pound. Oh. Wow. Okay. okay. And then you add the two the two fifty on top of that, mm-hmm. you're all the way up to five fifty. Okay. And I just want to say something that we have discovered in engaging with our customers for $5.50 a pound, you can have a coffee. Um, so you're, you're able to save money on the coffee basically is like the, the punchline there, but there's something else hidden within it. We've discovered that uh, a lot of retailers, people who un- retailers understand their customers and what their customers want really well. And a lot of customers don't want super high acid coffees. <laughs> Hundred oh, percent. Yeah, it's very controversial to say, but like no, any, uh, anybody who's listened to this podcast before, and we haven't told you it, but the San Francisco Coffee Festival, the consumer show. Yeah. So, previous listeners, this is just a repeat. They can go get a glass of water, a cup of coffee. We did a simple like A B blind tasting, yeah. right? We asked the question, you know, two coffees, it's blind. Which one do you prefer, and which one do you think is more expensive? Mm-hmm. And this was a pretty sophisticated customer base. I mean, these yeah. are people spending 25 to 75 bucks for a ticket. And we had Unleashed Coffee, like a good, solid, chocolate, sweet, good body Brazil. Mm-hmm. And we had a geisha that would sell for $20 a cup in a cafe. Yep. And it's no surprise to yep. you, almost across the board, people not only preferred the Brazil, they also thought it was the more expensive coffee. Yeah, yeah. Which was a surprise. And I, I want to connect a dot that's a little bit outside of our conversation here and just bring it in. Um, this is, um, so one of my favorite leading lights in the coffee industry is James Hoffman. He's an advisor to us and to the company and, and kind of a, a friend of mine as well. I really, really like James. Um, but James gave this great talk. Uh, when I went to Let's Talk Coffee a couple of years ago, the Sustainable Harvest event. And uh, he gave this great talk about um, how we don't manage risk equitably with farmers. But one of the big takeaways from that talk was that when we started doing this, when I started doing this, I thought quality was the answer to everything, <laughs> right? And that quality was defined in a way, like we were defining what quality meant. And and that the consensus definition of quality at some point in time became sort of like the Gesha. It's like a very high acid, very floral, very clean, slick uh, coffee. And... Um, quality does not equate to uh, social or economic equity for farmers. I think that that's something that I've seen. The relentless push for quality did not improve uh, outcomes for farmers in the way that we all told ourselves it was going to because they'd get more money for their coffee, et cetera, et cetera. And so I've come to the position now that um, consumers may want a coffee that is easier or more 
more feasible for farmers to grow, right? And that um, we within the industry, sort of we, the people around this table, not specifically us, but um, especially coffee people, have distorted the relationship between farmer and drinker by trying to push the farmer to grow uh, things that were more in keeping with what we liked and try to quote unquote educate our customers to like the same stuff that we liked. But actually, we should be focused on our role connecting those two parties, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't to say that if you have a business where you only want to do really, like you only want to do coffees that score at 90 or above, like more power to you. This is not a criticism of that as a business model. I think it's um, a little bit more of a check on us as professionals to make sure that we're not inserting our own agendas in place of what we think are the things that need to happen, which is our, our customers need a product that they love. We need to grow our market. We need to sell more coffee and we need to take care of our farmers in a different way. Yeah, no, I, love it. I, mean, I, I always look at like, to me, the shining lights in the coffee industry are these companies that are able to do you know, kind of what I call like surprising coffee in surprising places, mm-hmm. right? Like, are you a roaster? Then yeah, maybe you do some high end kind of boutique things, but are you able to provide like a bread and butter product that right. people will drink in their That's office, right. that you'll find at a university. Maybe you can get a cup at a sporting event or something. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a really hard promise to deliver on. Agreed. And props to the people that have kind of figured out that market because mm-hmm. it's, you know, I think Equator, a local roastery here, yep. kind of plays in that. Yep. Portland Roasting has always been very... Totally. Portland Coffee Roasting, I think, is their new company, has always succeeded yep. in that realm. And... Yeah, and it's fun to watch like the companies that you and I grew up with, the stump towns of the world. Yeah, the intelligentsias kind of also evolve in such a way to accommodate that kind of business. Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating how that idea of surprising coffee in surprising places, how bellwether. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, into this. Well, I um, I I was uh, interviewed recently by uh, Highland. Uh, the he's the head of the Coffee Technicians Guild. I'm a member there, and um he was sort of asking about like the last decade of coffee. I think the question was, and I had to reflect for a moment. I thought, you know, the most radical thing I saw in the last decade was Tony Konecki and Daniel Patterson trying to come up with the dollar a cup coffee program. I was thinking about that very program this morning as I was driving into work. I was recalling just how hard that is. It's really hard. It's really hard, but that is an interesting hill to climb, right? That is, that's the kind of challenge that is still, no, it's not, it shouldn't be a bad cup of coffee and it should certainly not be an unsustainable cup of coffee, but could you do a $1 cup of coffee that was enjoyable and that was helping farmers rather than hurting them? Um, I think that that those are like the kind of, um, that's like the, the whatever, the DARPA projects for us, right? Like that's the, <laughs> that's the big challenge to this industry. Um, I think that we have shown how to start and run a business that uh, where you're gonna like focus on single origin and um, you're gonna say you're direct trade and um, we like like those that business model is is very well that path is very well trod right now mm-hmm. and we've reached a certain segment of of our population and they're part of our market now and that's great but I'm definitely one of those people who thinks that we need to expand our market and go places where we don't go like interesting places, right? Yeah, I'm always most excited to sit down and have a conversation with the 
coffee program people at McDonald's. Totally. Or the roasting companies that are roasting that coffee, the Farmer totally. Brothers, Club Coffees, S&Ds of the world. Because yep. these people do care deeply. Mm-hmm. And have they delivered on all their promises? No, It's but it's freaking hard. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, interesting. You know, sometimes when I kind of hang around with students at Boot Coffee campus and I kind of like brag about Anish Coffee and, you know, the farmer stuff like, and they always ask me, are you a specialty uh, coffee farm? I was like, what, what does it mean, <laughs> specialty coffee farm? It's, a co- it's like, imagine an apple tree and you have premium, beautiful apples. You separate them, you sell them to the, you know, uh, William Sonomas of the of the fruit world. Then you have regular apples, which go to maybe Trader Joe's. Then you have like uh, apples, which go to you know Walmart. And, uh, and then you've got the applesauce. And, and the then you need to make applesauce, <laughs> yeah. and you have to make cider or the whatever you whiskey, use it for. The, uh, right. Yeah. So yeah, and no, people see, and people, our students who are actually coffee or future coffee professionals are puzzled. Like, oh, that's right. People don't even cross in mind that you know if coffee farm produces. All kind of coffees. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah and, that's and the right. challenge: how do you yeah, filter that out, right? And right. We think a lot about um, helping to firm up the market for eighty-two point coffees, right? Um, now we sell ninety-point coffees in our marketplace. I don't want to give everybody the impression that like <laughs> we're focused. You know, we sell all sorts of coffees. And 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 we did bring Geisha to do a trial. Yeah, absolutely. Either today or at a future date, which we will kind of update this. With the yes, yeah, yes, be awesome. yes, because. Yeah, we. I mean, I think. Yeah, we know that the roaster is capable of. Yeah. Of that flexibility. It is. It is. So let's get back to this value proposition question, right? So yep. you you were buying coffee for ten dollars a pound. Now you're able to produce your own coffee for five dollars and fifty cents a pound, right? Yep. Okay. Um, you also can have that coffee anytime you want. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you don't need to wait for the delivery van to show up once a week. You can just make it, and then like if you know. Um, you know, like when I used to be in the wholesale business at, at Blue Bottle, when I saw that side of the business, everybody wanted their delivery on Friday right? because they wanted to get as close to their weekend rush as they could so that they knew how much stock they had left over before they placed their next order for the weekend, right? But if you have your own roaster in your shop, you can just on a Thursday, you can say, you know, um, I have 10 pounds left. I go through so and so many pounds on a Saturday. Let's go. Like, I'll just roast that amount. Right. When you forget that there's the street festival outside your cafe and Absolutely. suddenly you're out of coffee. A wholesale oh, order comes in. Yep. You know? Yep. So let's, and that's another interesting thing. So you're this bakery. Maybe you've never thought of it until now, but now you can actually bag coffee and sell it across the counter to your people who come in for the croissants. You can say, we've started roasting our own coffee. And so now this is, um, uh, this is Marcus's roast as well as Marcus's croissant. Right. Right. Sort of in a, in a miniaturized version, you can do what Tartine and Manufactory mm-hmm. did. That was my first thing. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. No, it's great. And, and even if my volume doesn't increase at all, right, I just did back of the napkin math. And it's, you know, at 150 pounds a week, let's just assume four weeks mm-hmm. in a month. You know, that's 6,000 yeah. bucks that I'm spending on coffee at $10 a pound. Yeah. And, you know, with your model, 550 a pound for the coffee plus that 1500 a month lease or mm-hmm. rental. Yeah, there's just forty eight hundred bucks. Actually, and, so the, the and yeah, there's some labor or whatever that you need to wrap into The five fifty a pound includes the rental cost. Oh, yeah, I oh, spread so that out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So now, it's even yeah. In all fairness, of course, yeah. there is some. Um, you don't need to attend the roaster while it's roasting. You tell right. it what you want it to do. Um, you know, either by selecting a roast profile or by designing a roast profile if you want, um, and then it will execute your 
your roasting desires, so to speak, right? And it brings the right. product all the way through from green to roasted, cooled, finished, and ready to bag. Um, but there's a little bit of labor in there, so you probably want to pack a little bit of labor into that. Oh, but, of course. but pretty yeah, so quickly, it, you it see it comes out that 550 comes out to just 3300, yeah. right? So right. that's like so 40 percent. So that looks like it's the value proposition, right? right? That's what we thought. And then we started engaging with our customers, and it turns out that the most valuable thing about our roaster is, in fact, um, the theater of the thing, and that it draws people in. Mm -hmm. uh, it uh, coffee coffee serving businesses are very much in the business of selling experiences okay mm -hmm. and um, you know that people may it may not sound good to people they're like no I it's all about my product it's about the quality of the coffee in this cup but um, if your countertops are made out of Corian and not plywood you're totally selling an experience in your shop right if, are you pouring latte art exactly art exactly you are you are you're selling some a beautiful experience and having a, a roaster roasting the product in the store is part of that experience again people and, and it isn't flim flam people want to know where the things that they are consuming are coming from and being able to show people by having it in your point of retail is, is really powerful right yeah and if yeah, and delivering, as you said, kind of the best roaster built is this um, control and consistency. Yes. And that's, that is the bread and butter of a cafe, right? It's that. Yes. It's tapping into that element of customer service that's ritual. Yeah. How do you ritualize that experience for your customers so that mm -hmm. they come back every morning, that's not right. just an occasional morning. Then they come back middle of the day, and then maybe they come back later in the day. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. And suddenly your $3 a cup customer is a... $10 a cup customer. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. $10 absolutely. a day customer. There's Then you can always start an e-commerce site, right? Right. And, and they're buying a bag once a week, right? They're buying 12 ounces once, once a week. week so there's a $15 can, sale or a $20 yeah. sale. Keep in mind, we're talking about, uh, so if in your case, um, it's just to talk about throughput here. Um, it is most comfortable at around two batches an hour. Um, that sounds very low to people, okay? Um, but we believe in being transparent here. We're just, you know, um, it's because we learned, and we learned this when we were already in the business, um, that we didn't want to prize throughput over quality. And for the roaster to be able to do exactly what you ask it to do, it needs to be very careful about its preheat condition. Okay. Okay. And to achieve that preheat condition, when you're done roasting, right? On a normal roaster, you would like open up the door and a bunch of heat escapes and you're pumping heat out through your roof. If you have an, if you have a recirculating roaster that's as efficient as ours, it's built to retain the energy and not send it out everywhere. Uh, it takes a little bit longer for the drum to reset itself to a temperature where you'd want to drop beans in. So how many hours you can run it a day? Oh, you can run it all day. That's not a problem. 24 hours. I mean, if you ran it 24 hours a day, I think that you would find that your maintenance intervals would be significantly, like you're, you're gonna have to maintain it, right? It's like an espresso machine. Well, I'll say that. Like, if you are running an espresso machine nonstop 24 hours a day, you're gonna have to have somebody come in and service the gaskets and screens more frequently than once every six months. And it's a traditional roasting machine, right? If I'm running a 120 kilo probot, two shifts a day so 16 hours a day yeah guess what every friday is going to be like a down maintenance day oh perhaps, let's talk about right? that so Ooh. i mean but that's the reality of a that's the reality yeah production let's talk about facility. what maintenance is though okay because 
The most important thing for people who roast out there to understand about our roaster and maintenance is you do not need to scrape our roaster. Um, we have never had to scrape one of our roasters in our entire history as a company, and we have roasted tens of thousands of pounds on some of these units. Um, the reason is that what you're scraping when you scrape a roaster are like gaseous byproducts of roasting that condense on cool steel uh, exhaust pipes. Mm -hmm. But if you, our entire um, hot air circuit is very, very well insulated. It's, an, it's necessary for us to do what we want to do. Oh, we're totally in their room. Oh, well. Um, so if, it, if those metal surfaces are kept hot, nothing can condense on them. Mm. And all of those gaseous byproducts are brought through to our catalytic assembly and cleaned off there. It does require maintenance. Okay, you've got to do the chaff. Uh, I mentioned to this group earlier, you have to, um, it harvests moisture because it's not just jettisoning a lot of moisture out into the air. Mm -hmm. So uh, it condenses moisture out as it goes. You need to dump out your little moisture trap once in a while. Uh, you'll need to, that's, that's almost the end of what we ask users to do. A technician will have to come in and replace gaskets or might have to realign things, that sort of thing. Um, all the roasters are sold with a warranty, which is a stem to stern warranty that includes maintenance at this time. Okay. Okay, because we know we have to go. Yes. I have some yeah. fast questions for you. Yes, please. And maybe you have, and let's, let's just roll with that. So first of all, we talk about farmers. Yeah. Can farmers join your marketplace? Uh, farmers need to join our marketplace by sending samples to Gabriel Boscana, our green buyer. That's what I would say about that. Um, we have... I know it's supposed to be a short answer, but just very quickly, what we are interested in, if people want to engage with us and sell green coffee to us, uh, we are going to ask you some questions about how that coffee was grown, harvested, and processed, because we want insight into the value chain. We're trying to pay fair prices, and we want to, so we want to know where our money is going. Okay. Uh, what is your ultimate goal with this roster? Where, where would people use it? All over the world, or is it just United yes. States? No, uh, we do seek to be a global company. Uh, we installed our first roaster in Canada, I think last week, that's our first international roaster. So we're already getting our feet wet there. Um, Europe, Europe, Asia. Is it there yet or not? It is not yet there. Uh, we are not, um, we are not yet ready to engage with the European or Asian markets. Um, at a company like this, we see many, many avenues we could pursue that would be very fruitful but we want to make sure that we are focused on the most important things. And the most important things is the most important thing is being an excellent partner to the people who are purchasing our roaster now. And those people are in the United States. Uh, we have a backlog of people who have already ordered our roaster that we cannot yet fill. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to make sure that we're, we're doing right by the people that we're already doing business with. That was my next question. I want one. I want one. Where can I uh, ask for one and how long do I have to wait? Uh, if you want a roaster, and if you want to learn more about our roaster, you should go to our website. Uh, that's the quickest way to do it. Can we put it in a show notes? What's that? We are going to put it in a show notes. So we'll put the link to the website in, a, in the oh, show. Oh, excellent. Yes, that would be wonderful. Yeah, yeah bellwethercoffee.com. It's wonderful. And there's a, just like a learn more tab there, a couple pieces of information. Someone will reach out to you and answer any and all questions you have. Is there, um, how long would you have to wait? I cannot give you a time that you would have to wait right now. Uh, if you were... If you were really motivated and um, and you were really ready, I'll say, I'll say that. I think that a lot of people are, are 
um, they engage with us and they're interested and they know they want to do it at the end of the day. Um, uh, but not everybody is ready to go right away. It's a big decision for people. But if you're ready, um, we will work to find you a roaster in a time frame that works for you. Okay. I'm going to say that. Cool. So, and so to if follow you, that up, if I think I'm ready to go, then what do I need to be prepared with for an install as far as either you know, facilities, but mm -hmm. also do I need to worry about permitting? Do I need to call right. my... What I would say about permitting is that uh, we are in the process right now of achieving certifications um, that will make this roaster as innocuous as a toaster oven from a, yeah, from a, from a legal point of view. Um, so yeah, the idea is absolutely that you don't need to engage with, uh, you don't need to pull a permit or anything. And, and the reality is, right, how many of these are out in the world? I don't think uh, we have it. some, I, you know, it's like literally it changes by the day right now. So I think we have 53 today. Cool. So, yeah, so this is a, this is a reality, right? It's, we're it's not a reality. talking about a dream. We are talking no, about no, something yeah. that yeah, we, has been proven now for a while. Absolutely. We are, um, uh, people are purchasing, I'm trying to think about this, uh, from the marketplace, people are purchasing about 6,000 pounds a month right now with our current install base. Uh, and I think that, yeah, I think I got that right. And we want to be at a, above 400 units by the end of the year. Can I use my own coffee in the roaster? You absolutely can use your own coffee in the roaster. You can use your own coffee. You can design your own roast profiles. Uh, your roast profiles will remain private to you. That's all your proprietary stuff. Um, yeah. If you succeed, let's say you guys really basically placing, not replacing, but actually are next to every espresso maker mm -hmm. in every cafe. What shall I do, the roaster? Um, you should... Find a new hobby or... No, no, absolutely not. Again, we would, uh, we would maintain that you, you should reframe what roasting is as an activity, okay? If you are a roaster, what do you do? You purchase green coffee, you design roast profiles, and then somebody executes those profiles, right? There's branding that's involved there, design... And you should engage in all of those activities. If you're a roaster that wants to work with us and figure out how to use us to be able to have your product roasted everywhere in the world without ever shipping roasted coffee, we want to talk to you. We're, again, I said this at the beginning, we're not trying to pick winners and losers here. Um, we're trying to introduce appropriate technology. Okay. Just really quickly to say this, um, if you roast on a bellwether, your carbon footprint for the roasting activity is, I believe, less than one-tenth of that on a traditional open flame drum roaster. So it, we haven't talked about it a lot here, but um, this company is very serious about trying to find a way to address the climate impacts of our profession. And they are significant, and we're not really looking at it in the right way today as an industry, I would say. Yep. Wow. Okay, Arnold, thank you so much. For this me, you are awesome. doing an evil thing because I will lose my job. No, I'm kidding. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> we no, would love to talk cool. to you about your plans. Um, yeah, no, but I mean, just I want to make, make absolutely sure that this is clear. Um, we are talking to companies big and small, okay? And we have, uh, we have already seen that there will be ways for people who have established brands to extend their reach um, and it is, of course, our dream that someday they might break up with their, like, 1958 roaster, right? That has an exposed leather belt that is super dangerous and... But beautiful. Oh, yeah, they're beautiful. Absolutely. 
I mean, I, I'm a nostalgist, okay? I own a 1981 pickup truck. Uh, I, I rode daily in 1968 motorcycle for years. Like, um, this is very much part of my identity. I get it. But um, something that, like, I talked to, uh, you know, everybody knows who Peter Giuliano is, right? I think he's what, chief research officer of the SCA? Yep, yeah, something, something like that. Yeah, formerly with counterculture, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, again, one of these leading lights in the industry. And we talk a lot about the tyranny of nostalgia, okay? Nostalgia is very seductive, and it has a place. And it, it, it has a place in our lives where it can remind us of, of what was good about the past and, and the values we want to uphold. But in this industry, in our industry, we are way too beholden to nostalgia and the way that things used to be. And we need to start... Um, basing, like sort of justifying our existence on something other than that's the way that they used to do it. All right, that's a yeah, good that's a end great note. Way to wrap I want to thank up. you so much for your time, and we hope to come back and maybe film your uh, roster. Absolutely, we can't wait. Yep, okay, we'll cool. do that. We'll put it on the calendar as soon as we wrap. But right, let's do it. It's a wrap. We are. Yeah, thanks everybody. Thank you. Thank you.